0: Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 304 Elementary Statistics with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. Hi, we're in Unit 5 now. We're going to talk about motivation, emotion, stress, and health. And in Module 29, our focus is on the basic motivational concepts, affiliation and achievement. So there are different theories about what motivates us to do certain behaviors. Uh, One is an instinct theory which is uh, kind of more of a physiological uh, predisposed thing that we want to um, make sure that we, if we're hungry, we want to make sure that we eat. And another one is called drive reduction theory. And so this responds to some inner pushes or pulls that we have or may experience. Some is arousal, trying to understand what's the, the right stimulation uh, level. Do you need a lot of stimulation? If you're more of an extrovert, you need more stimulation. If you're an introvert, you mean less. And we'll talk about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, the drive reduction theory is basically to uh, the physiological needs that we have, and uh, so. We want to reduce those needs. If it's uh, hunger, we want to eat. If it, we're tired, we want to sleep. And so we are pushed by that desire to reduce those drives. And but we're pulled by incentives that we may get, you know, knowing that you'll feel better if you um, you eat is an incentive. Um, if you want to get rid of the hunger, that's uh, re- an idea to reduce the drives. An arousal theory is that, Some motivational behaviors can increase rather than decrease behavior. Um, So we want to try to find what are optimal um, arousal levels. And again, not to, um, you know, everyone's a little bit different. Uh, You probably have someone that you know that might enjoy a more active environment than you do or maybe you enjoy more than they do. But um, there's different theories regarding the idea that we want to try to find that arousal level that is uh, comfortable for us. Probably the most famous is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And it begins with the basic ones, and we'll show you here on this diagram, where it goes from physiological needs, and needs that we have to eat, we have to have some, um, something to um, satisfy our thirst, our hunger, we have uh, safety, we need shelter. And then the idea of more abstract, of wanting to belong, to feel like you're a part, feel like you have something to need, um, to love. And then the feeling of self-esteem, that you have a sense of achievement. And the idea of self-actualization, that you need to live up to your uh, fullest or unique potential. And then at the highest level is called the self-transcendence needs, and these needs to find uh, meaning and identity beyond yourself. And uh, sort of, and a lot of times people relate this to relationship with God. We also have a need to belong, and we um, depend. No matter if you're an introvert and kind of quiet, we still need to feel like we are part of some group, and. One, it enhances our survival. Um, you know, we need the, um, the ideas of uh, people who are producing our food, are providing our roads, are providing electricity. These things that we take for granted, we need each other to, um, to be able to survive. It um, being a part of a group affects our emotions and understands our performance, our health, our self-esteem. And so there's this idea that we want to be a part of a group is one of the central theories of affiliation. If we're not a part of a group, if we feel like we're being shut out or ostracized, um, that causes some pain. Uh, Sometimes uh, different religious groups will ostracize someone if they've gone against the practices of their faith as a way to bring about some pain and hopefully repentance. Um, But also, it doesn't have to be a formal ostracism, but just to feel like you're not a part of the group that you wish to be a part of. And just pain itself, either physical or emotional pain, uh, sometimes causes us to make corrective action and be able and it motivates us to make some changes in our life. Now, with um, social media, we have different um, ways to affiliate with one another people who have maybe different interests that you do, but also, um, and you know, there's a higher percentage, I think every year grows up, people are meeting their spouses through online dating. Um, So, and there's there's something valuable to connect with the people that have been a part of your life, but also it can create envy when you start comparing your life to those of others, And, and it can also, uh, support maybe some narcissistic tendencies that um, we may have. So, there's positives and negatives, even with the idea of connecting through social media. We have a desire for achievement, no matter what that is. Your goals may be different, you know, uh, but we want to have some sort of mastery or of our skills or ideas. We want to have a standard that we have. No, it doesn't Everyone doesn't have the same standard, but we do have some standard that we're trying to achieve. Some people have extremely high motivations and that they want to have, they come millionaires or billionaires or they want to have a, uh, achieve a physical goal or an athletic goal. And um, what does it take to achieve those ideas of persistence, self-discipline, just grit, just being resilient to stick with it in order to achieve the goals you have. Our next uh, module in 30, is just talks about the psychology of hunger. The um, hunger is is a physical component as well as psychological. There's a certain aspect of body chemistry related to glucose, what's your basic uh, metabolic rate that you have. But also, there's a psychology of hunger as well. And it involves body chemistry, but also, brain activity and things like we get used to eating at a certain time. Have you ever been extremely busy and maybe you've kind of worked through your lunch or or dinner time and uh, because something was distracting you and you weren't thinking about that coming meal. When we're less uh, active, we tend to think more about those goals of uh, uh, trying to get uh, that next meal or win dinner or supper. We, uh, our environment has a lot of influence on what we do eat. You can see the uh, graph there. It says the mean annual temperature and the spices per recipe. Well, a part of that is the fact that spices tend to grow in warmer temperatures, but they're more available and people are able to use those. So um, those, uh, if you're a part, if you have a desire for spicy food, you, you know, may have some background and your environment was in a warmer climate um what influences our eating it can also be what are our friends what are our you know what's available to us what is our environment saying even serving sizes what size plate they serve your meal on um you know what selection do you have uh things that are relied on and people who are involved in uh selling food and, and restaurants and, and uh... grocery stores and things like that understand what motivates us to buy this food and uh... how we want to package it or how we want to present it to uh... the customer well we live in a society now where we have an overabundance of food and um, because of that our bodies were not designed to really store up that much fat and uh... fat storage is really an, ev- uh, an evolutionary product of trying to get through lean times by providing fat for you to do that, but we don't tend to go through lean times. Uh, we have this, you know, we can get food each and every day. And so there's a, uh, an aspect of, um, of the psychology and the environment working together to related to the role of obesity. Um, it can also relate to sleep loss or It could also be a part of what society are you involved in and what is your, you know, what is looked at as healthy or allowable in your uh, environment. Now we're going to talk about emotions, both the theories and the physiology of emotions. There's different components of emotion. When we experience emotion, our bodies get aroused. We have, uh, we express that on our faces. We're aware of that. And um, so how did all these fit together? Well, there's different theories and one, the James Longa theory says arousal comes before emotion, that our body has this uh, sense of arousal and then we experience the emotion. The Cannon-Bard theory says arousal and emotion happen at the same time, that there's no real distinction between the two. Um, The Schachter-Singer theory says that we have this general arousal But then we have a conscious or label that we've associated with that. And uh, so there's, as you can see, there's a variety of theories that have uh, related to uh, the concept of emotion and what comes first, you know, uh, the physical component or the the, uh, expression of that in emotion. So if you uh, had a, um, you know, if you see a, a scary movie, do we... Um, and you're seeing, you know, kind of a horrific scene or something. Do we think about that first and then have a physical reaction or do we have a physical reaction and then have the emotion or does it occur at the same time? Uh So psychologists are still studying this and trying to understand the the sequence of it. Um, Sometimes we have the thinking high road and which is talk about there on the left side where we get uh, input stimuli to us and it goes through our amygdala, thalamus, our prefrontal cortex, different parts of our brain like we've talked about before. And then we make a decision about how we are to react. And the low road is the idea that um, it goes straight to the amygdala and then we have our response. We don't really send it to other parts of our brain. And if you've ever had like uh, someone come out from the dark and scare you or something like that. It's so quick we don't even think about it so our bodies are designed to save us time in some ways on these when we have these threats to us that uh, we can react quickly. Now psychologists are trying to understand what are the basic emotions we've had and again like most of the things we're talking about there are different theories. Uh, the um, most psychologists who deal with emotions says the basic emotions that we have are anger fear disgust sadness and happiness now others have added others uh, such as surprise sadness and things like that and pride and love but um, for most part the earliest list the top bullet point there is what the most basic emotions we have and all other emotions are combinations of those kind of think of it like uh... the color wheel and uh... you know with red, blue and green and trying and every other color is really a combination of those. And when we do have uh, intense emotions, our body does change where you know our pupils when we're in a stress situation on the left you know we get the pupils dilate, we start to uh... salivation decreases. What happens essentially is our body is deciding where to send the energy that we need to get through that time. So, uh, more energy is going to your hands and legs, less energy is going to your stomach because you don't need to eat at that time when your kid is slipping off the boat dock. You need to respond quickly. So, once that's our sympathetic nervous system going into effect, once that danger is over, then our parasympathetic nervous system goes into effect and it calms us down. So, we're not Uh, constantly being stressed and really we're trying to get a sense of balance or what we call homeostasis. So um, the interesting part is that when different emotions can share different uh, biological signatures you know that you can your body can react the same way to different emotions and uh, sometimes a single area of the brain can be the seed of different emotions and but some emotions actually have different locations in the brain and one of the things that uh, you know you've heard in movies or television is lie detectors and what they are doing is trying to measure the autonomic or the stress arousal uh, reactions that we have when we tell a lie such as changing in the heart rate or breathing or perspiration but just to know that about a third of the time they're just wrong. And uh, so that's, um, uh, even though it makes for good television or movies sometimes, they're not accurate and they're not used in courts of law. So how do we express and experience emotion in psychology? If you look at those pictures at the bottom, if you look for the one in the far left and the far right, they look quite different. But if you look at any two of them, you see that, the ones that are next to each other aren't really that different. They're just really slight differences. But um, we have an ability to detect emotions by reading the facial movements of the people that we're speaking with. So these reveal emotional signs. And so uh, people are sometimes better at reading these than others. Um, People with uh, autism spectrum disorder have difficulty understanding that these um, these uh, facial expressions are related to emotions. Um, the uh, Being able to uh, read emotional cues tends to happen better with women, but again, it's a tendency, not a, a hard and fast rule, um, such as expressing empathy and emotional events more daily, uh, deeply. So you can see on the graph that uh, women tend to be uh, better at these Uh, these types of emotions. Every culture has a different uh, type of of, uh, understanding what emotions are and um, the um, whether it's a head shake or crying or things like that those can be interpreted differently so what's appropriate in one culture to express emotion may be different in another culture and especially with gestures. So We're able to uh, uh, communicate, to relay our feelings, and both understand the feelings of others through reading the facial uh, expressions of others.